Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Jean-Sébastien Bocan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Web3 platform La Collection. And you're listening to Collection 3.0, the podcast bridging art, culture, and Web3. With the rapid evolution of technology, it can be difficult to understand how it's shaping the future of art. So join me and my team of experts as they investigate this cultural revolution. I'd like to welcome Jeff Coyen. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so yes, this is the second in our series of interviews around uh, our JSG Bogs project with La Collection. Uh, as we've launched this week, the first ever NFT project with this legendary American artist. Um, I am Katie Kennedy. I am director of art partnerships at La Collection, as Jeff knows. And maybe you would like to introduce yourself to our listeners. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. My name is Jeff Coyen. I'm a career journalist, but also in sort of hobbyist for and side projects. I've uh, been involved with cryptocurrencies for a while in various art projects and sort of this Boggs collaboration is sort of a, a perfect intersection of all my interests. Yeah, so that, that's it. Today in our conversation, we're really going to get into that side of uh, uh, Boggs's work, his legacy. Uh, you have a great interest, I know, in art and art and currency. And of course, um, this expertise uh, uh, from the crypto and NFT world, which uh, you're bringing to the state, which is fascinating. But maybe I'm just going to start by asking how you came across the work of Boggs in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like he's bubbled up in my interests over the years. And I know a friend of mine worked on a magazine where they tried to get him, to, they tried to commission some work you know, 15 years ago. But in terms of direct access, it really came through the cryptocurrency um, sort of uh, realm in that Boggs is mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this later, I think, Boggs is really very much a spiritual influence on cryptocurrency. And so he gets mentioned in a lot of these circles. And that's how I came across them. And I just found it fascinating. Again, we'll, we'll go into it in more detail, how much th 20, 30 years ago, he was there questioning the value of currency. And that just sort of caught uh, the Boggs bug is uh, what a lot of people call it. And I caught it hard several years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people are always fascinated by his personality. Uh, it's very much his art and the person himself who, who intrigues everyone. And it's interesting that you came into this actually from the crypto world, um, as today, of course, we're doing a project. And maybe that uh, segues into a little bit uh, into uh, discussing how you joined the estate uh, in the role, really, of the advisor for these Web3 projects. Yeah, it's it's a very crazy story, and my wife likes to say it's it's a very sort of Jeff uh, occurrence to have happen. I went with a friend and partner, Alex Zychek, about four years ago. We were toying around early NFT days. NFTs were not known at all yet. They were barely known in some of the crypto circles I was I was speaking at and presenting. I was trying to educate people about this token standard, and Alex and I had an idea. Uh, having been sparked by this Boggs bug to create an online gallery for NFT art inspired by and in the in the tradition of Boggs's work. So basically currency, currency art, money art, but also sort of the culture jamming aspect, not just strictly drawing on dollar bills, but sort of the questioning, the culture jam, the, the punkiness of it, you know, what kind of artists were out there. And so we sort of put up a storefront and then COVID hit. And so we sort of backburnered it. Everybody went into their caves and huddled up and took care of their kids and became 
grade school teachers, at least in my case. But the website stayed up there. We kept, you know, we kept toying around with it. We kept, you know, reaching out to other artists. And then the craziest thing happened is one day an email came saying from the estate of JSG Boggs. And, you know, being in this end of sort of media, sort of this, uh, this punky culture jamming side of things, I immediately figured I was in trouble. I was waiting for the cease and desist letter saying, stop using, you know, my brother or cousin's name in vain. But it was quite the opposite. It's the estate of JSG Boggs. It's mostly, it's his relatives, it's his cousins, aunts and uncles, because um, Boggs died without any children when he died five years ago. But the estate liked what we were doing and wanted to talk. And we had a conversation and it was just such a fantastic conversation. The estate is doing the hard work of, of preserving and extending his legacy and his body of work. And they're going through archives and, you know, vastly unorganized, you know, when somebody passes away unexpectedly, you tend not to have your archives in order, especially if you're a working artist. And that was Boggs. So they weren't sure what to do. And Alex and I had a vision already for what Boggs can be and where he could fit into this Web 3.0 and crypto and cypherpunk sort of landscape. And, and we'd seen his influence already into this world. And so we decided to work together. They are working on the physical archives and they're doing their thing. And they wanted sort of help and a roadmap to go to go digital with the work. And that's how we are here today. That's really fascinating. And of course, I can imagine your reaction when you see an email from the estate when you're doing this type of project. And I know that your your project or the website is called Bogs with a Z. So it's very much uh, it's very much a homage, I would say, to uh, to Boggs um, as an artist and, and what he represents. And um, maybe we'll come to that as well in a little bit um, in more detail. But yeah, I really wanted to actually circle back to this idea, this fundamental idea of what makes Boggs a crypto uh, interesting in the crypto world. Uh, if you could really share with us, you know, what your, your understanding of uh, how he would be interested in that and how he started to get interested in that very early. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will touch very briefly on what he did uh, for listeners and watchers, I'm sure, know about him. But Boggs is his claim to fame, let's say. He, he had a couple different phases in his career. But his real claim to fame was drawing or painting representations of, of bills, of dollar bills, of franc notes, of euros, and then taking them into stores and establishments and spending them. He said he never sold his work. He spent them. So if he had a drawing of a $100 bill and he wanted some art supplies, he'd go to the art store and it was definitely a song and dance, and there's video out there of him making the, the pitch. He's very much a pitch man. And he said one time out of 10, somebody would understand what he was doing, and they'd take that $100 bill drawing and treat it like $100. And that's the key. If he was buying $90 worth of art supplies, they gave him $10 back as change. And then the genius part was a gallery owner or a collector would then go and try to secure all those pieces, collect, collect the bill, collect the receipt, maybe even some of the art supplies, and put that as a work called a transaction. And that's his, his most important works that are collected around the world in private collections. So that's a long way around to saying Boggs created his own unit of currency. Sort of like a small town that has a barter system or a, a local currency, he created something that said, this is going to be worth $100 because we both say it is. And that's an encapsulation of Bitcoin. I can't think of a better encapsulation of Bitcoin, where for 10 years I've been hearing people say, it's just digital files, it's garbage, it doesn't mean anything. What's it worth? Well, it's worth what people say it's worth. And if I'm going to give you one for that and you're going to give me one for that, that's what it is worth. And that's what Boggs was doing 30 years ago. He created his own local network currency. And people would collect the bills and exchange them and they'd gain value. Think about a transaction that was bought for $5,000 by a gallery, sold to a museum for 10000 
that's appreciation of a local currency really at core. It's an art project. It's performative. But that's really this. He created his own currency. And so then 20 years later, you have um, founders of Second Life, who was an early sort of metaverse project, taking inspiration from Boggs and saying, we're going to have our own in-game currency. And you see World of Warcraft. They have their own in-game currencies. Games now, as a standard, have their own in-game currency. And then you have the Ethereums and the Bitcoins of the world. Boggs did that in the 80s. And it's, he's unsung or undersung, I would say, but really catching on in this community. The people who are designing the infrastructure and the philosophies of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, most of them know about Boggs. Yeah, so it's, it's very much this kind of, uh, not only was it a philosophical uh, forefather, but also he was doing it. He was kind of out there actually doing it. And and I suppose in this context, it's useful to talk about the, you know, the, the um, interest that that attracted from governments, because, of course, um, crypto and all these Bitcoins are very much causing a lot of trouble, let's say. And in fairness, Boggs managed to really attract the attention of the uh, various governments, so the Bank of England or the Feds in the US. Um, so what he was doing was not insignificant. They certainly didn't consider it insignificant because I suppose the implications are quite vast. So how would you connect this, uh, what he was doing, so the hand-drawn notes, etc.? How would you make this kind of link with the digital era? Well, Boggs himself bridged that that divide in the 90s. He was an early adopter. So for, for all his, you know, he, he was educated, say, in the late 70s and the 80s. He really hit his, his peak in Europe and then in America with these hand-drawn bills. But he was quick to understand the power of digital art composition. And a lot of, or if not most of his work in the 90s, was at least finished in Photoshop. And I've, I've heard from people that once he hit the printout that he liked, he deleted his files. The estate's trying to figure that out. They've got a lot of disk drives to, they're still going through to see if those PSD files are there. Uh, but very much like, you know, an artist burning the masters or, you know, once the, the screen prints are done, you break the plates, um, in, sort of the, in the old analogy. But Boggs was digital and he had a website in the late 90s. He and we've uncovered um, a relationship where he was working on what was called an online encrypted currency in the late 90s. This is 10 years before Satoshi's white paper, and we're also in contact with the people he worked with there who were heavy into stenography and um, water, uh, digital watermarking. So he's there. He, he's there, if not in the room, but philosophically at the birth of, you know, the white paper comes out, um, what, 13 years ago. But 10 years before that is when, the, and even in the 90s, the philosophical underpinnings of crypto were being discussed um, smart contracts were proposed in the early 90s when he was on the scene. So I think there is a, a direct through line, not just a, a, an abstract philosophical connection 30 years ago. He was in the room, you know, perhaps even in the room with some of these people who were figuring this out. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly saw that there was a reference to encrypted currency um, in, a, in an article um, dating, I think, from the year 2000. So this is, you know, very much documented. Um, so... He was very much uh, interested in the in protocols as well as an artist. I mean, um, in our discussion with Craig, we saw how much uh, he he was, um, uh, you know, noting down serial numbers and uh, attaching them to everything and very much controlling the process. So I think, uh, would you say that that also has a kind of connection to this kind of very uh, coded, codified nature of things? Yeah, I think he had a keen understanding of the importance of authentication. He was uh, he was very protective of his intellectual property, and he understood the power of copyright. And as much as he wanted to distribute these things, he wanted ownership to come back to him. And I don't think it was in a control freaky way. My sense is it was 
in an authenticating kind of way. And in your conversation with Craig, or if you've seen the records, if he was doing an edition that was like laser printed or offset print, he would do you know, squiggly patterns on the back and then cut the sheet. Because then if you wanted to authenticate, you had to come back to the sheet or you had to go back to another bill. And that's sort of in my mind, philosophically, uh, it, it is a prototypical decentralized authentication. You needed one of the other pieces to authenticate the other. And I, I absolutely find that fascinating. It's, it's sort of like a public key encryption. You have to, you could exchange two pieces, but if you don't have the right piece for each other, you're not validated or authenticated. He was doing that in physical form. His serial numbers, his inside jokes, his signatures. Like he, he really got it. He wanted his works to go out there and to survive him with their own sort of sense of authentication. A system that kind of uh, functions independently of him. And we're actually seeing this with the estate, of course. Uh, Craig can authenticate pieces by doing this uh, checking against templates and things like that. So maybe if we just actually take this idea of um, art and currency, which is uh, what you were also exploring, I think, in in Bogs, in your website, the project that connected you guys to um, to the estate. So how would you situate uh, Bogs within the context of at least maybe the last 100 years of art? I know you've got some ideas around that. Uh, well, some of the classic examples that you'll hear are, uh, and I, I, I assume it's, it's real, but it's also held up as apocryphal, that Picasso would write checks to his vendors or his, his, not his dentist, that's Duchamp, but he'd write checks knowing they'd never be cashed because the autograph was, the signature was more valuable than the check itself. Um, Duchamp paid his dentist, same thing with a, a piece of art or a check that he never intended to be cashed. And even earlier in the Americas, there's a tradition of uh, realistic artwork and the Secret Service coming in and, and seizing them because the painting was too realistic. Now, if we look at these paintings through a modern eye, it seems ridiculous uh, that these would seem to be a threat to, to money. But if you think about, you know, the eyes of 150 years ago, seeing a painting that looks so realistic was probably, you know, awe-inspiring. You know, we don't have digital, digital reproduction has sort of changed our standard for that. So I see Boggs on that continuity. And he's told the story too, that at his conventions, he has seen checks that he's written uncashed in glass being sold. So there is a direct connection to these sort of, you know, understanding the power of the art over the money. And then because he is in the modern age and he did work into the nineties, I do see him as sort of ushering us forward. So I, I, and that's why crypto appealed to me when I got into it, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, because it's that culture jamming aspect. It is that saying, I, I, you know, Everybody, if they make money in crypto, eventually turns it into cash to buy a house because you have to buy a house with cash. So we, we understand the importance of these institutions at present. But there is a, a freedom and a, and a cultural excitement to untethering ourselves from the government currencies. And that's what's excited me about Boggs, what excites me about crypto. And I think he was right there for it. Untethering the exchange of value from the gatekeepers. And, you know, he was... He was a lot more punk rock than people were even realizing. He was thumbing his nose in the early 90s, going to jail several times. Like He was pushing the limits of this untethering. And I, I think he should be you know, respected widely for this. Yeah, I think um, one, one word you used uh, in what you were saying there, which is very interesting, is the, the threat it's this, it's, it's this idea that, you know, one guy kind of going around, uh, you know, drawing some art and, um, and using it as tender has become such a, a, a menace, a threat, you know, a government level threat. And I, I suppose that this really brings back uh, to this idea of, you know, uh, what, what money is and how we decide what it is and, and essentially the fragility of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, it's sort of like uh, the story about Al Capone, the gangster being taken down on tax evasion, not for the crimes. Um, I, I feel like at a certain point, the government has to throw up its hands and say, okay, just pay your taxes. You know, I don't care if you bought that car with, or the motorcycle in Boggs' case, with five $1,000 bill drawings. I don't care. But that counts as a, as a taxable event. Just pay income on that fi- income tax or whatever on that $5,000. And I, I'd have to track down the quote, but I think there is a quote out there from Boggs saying, like, my taxes are meticulous. Because um, he was smart enough to know that's how a government's going to come after you. That is the big cudgel. Uh, the last resort cudgel of, of a lot of governments that say, you know, fine, you know, you're going to make this medium exchange, you're going to have a local currency, just pay it by the book so we can get our share. And, uh, and crypto people would be wise to remember that. Do whatever you want, just pay your taxes and you're going to be okay. Yes, I think that that's actually a, a very good point. Um, I, it it, uh, it resonates that he was very meticulous in his taxes because I, uh, from what I see from, uh, he may be very counterculture and you know the image of the guy on the motorbike and you know his performative aspect, but the control, the, the level of control and systematization of uh, the artwork is actually uh, contrary to that or surprising, let's say. Um, and then, you know, with the idea of taxation, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest that he's he's really, you know, I've got that covered. And I think it's really important to to point out in case anybody didn't see the first podcast or who, who maybe doesn't know his work, that there is zero notion of counterfeiting involved in in folks. It's, it's very important to kind of come back to that when, especially when we're talking about um, legal situations, but um, I mean, maybe you'd like to say a few words about this, but for example, there's very often nothing on the back of the notes. So they are extraordinarily easy to identify as not being at the point of it. Yeah. And the, the big famous case was the Bank of England, where he's brought up on counterfeiting charges um, on behest of the Bank of England, rather. They, they didn't arrest him, but it was on their behest. And he was, he was acquitted by a jury in you know, record time or something, because it was clear, patently clear on the face that he was not attempting to deceive anybody. Some of his artworks, there's one up in the Fitzwilliam in, in the UK right now. His, the bill is eight feet wide. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody's bringing that. It's like bringing one of those uh, you know, lottery checks or you know, one of those giant checks and trying to go to the supermarket. He, he never intended to deceive. He, again, from the start said he spent his art, never sold it. And anybody looking at it, you know, it would be absurd to think you'd, you'd mistake it for real money. And it really, I, I imagine at some point he got annoyed with that. It's like, I'm, I, never in a million years am I trying to pretend this is otherwise. So just let me pay my taxes and go about my art project. Yeah, because um, uh, the the process is, of course, quite interesting that he really lays it out and you can see that in the performances or what he himself called performative art is uh, he quite clearly explains its artworks, etc, etc. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a a big challenge uh, in the process. He's challenging and he's challenging people. And, you know, I think Bitcoin challenges people to question uh, their relationship with money. And um, folks, of course, when he was standing in front of someone, uh, literally saying to them, will you, you know, will you accept this? It puts people in a very, very, I would say, charged uh, uh, state of being. Obviously, you can see unease, even though he's, you know, charming um what would you say about that and and the way that people maybe feel about bitcoin today you know this kind of distrust and uh, not knowing quite how to react 
Yeah, I, I think there's there's many analogies there, and there's many stories of, you know, uh, some some guy. I, I personally knew some guy who went to sell a truck, and this was six years ago. And the guy authored him either it was Ethereum or it was Bitcoin. Obviously, when the price is very low, and he took it. It was like five thousand dollars worth of that, and he was, you know, the it's just like in bugs. These are generally people who are in the working class. He would go to the cashiers and the waiters and offer it. Sometime a manager would come in. So sometimes a restaurant would own that bill. Sometimes just the waiter would out of pocket it. And Bitcoin's very much the same way. You have people who are like, well, I'm trying to sell that truck. I need the $5,000, but this is kind of kind of weird. Or I, I kind of trust my friend who just told me about that. So I'll take a flyer on it and they, I'll maybe have a little hardship because I needed that cash. But if you can sit and have faith, um, or even if you don't have faith, even if it's just a, a weird experiment for you, like I've got plenty of friends who are sitting well at a loss on the experiment I, I posed to them. And if they could sit and hold it and forget about it, maybe in 10 years, you're sitting on a, a very valuable museum quality bogs or a lot more cryptocurrency. It's, it's, not, it's not unlike itself. It's, it's really the same sort of dynamic, the same challenge. Super interesting. So if we kind of come around to the, the project that we are working on today or that we've produced and is now um, being officially launched, maybe you could take me through the thought process uh, of that because uh, you contacted La Collection. Um, which we were immediately very excited about, but maybe you could like tell us, you know, how the idea generated and what you what you were really hoping to achieve. Yeah, with our our arrangement relationship with the estate was to start sort of testing the water with NFTs. Obviously, they hadn't done anything of this this sort before. It was honestly when the NFT market was so frothy and board apes were you know selling for millions of dollars, but. If we, if we cared about that, we would have gone out the door a year ago, and we didn't. We wanted to find the right project, select the right works, and the right way of doing this, and we came across uh, you guys, and you had just sort of launched, um, was it with the uh, the British Museum, your first projects, and, and we thought, you know, if they would take us on, we'd be thrilled, and you did, and I think some people over there got the bug, and you guys are a Web3 platform. You're, you're a crypto platform. You're blockchain-based art. So it would make sense that philosophically you would see this. You know, if, if we went knocking the doors of a traditional gallery, they'd be like, I, I don't know, this isn't our thing. But this is your thing. This is NFTs. This is extending the legacy and the value of estate-held and museum-held collections. So that's how we got together. And we were, you know, we were popping the champagne when you agreed to work with us. <laughs> now, in terms of putting the right collection together... You know, your team and our team, we collaborated and went through a lot of ideas. Boggs, as I said, had sort of three distinct stages in his career, the early um, the early bills, the transactions, and later he was sort of like mass producing sort of stunty, these fun bucks that he did with the coin and money collectors. And I think we went back and forth on all three and we settled on his early works. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we did because we settled on his works that were very mostly European in nature. So we have a, a British pound note, we have a franc, we have a euro, and that, for me, I wouldn't say it's his most exciting time, but it's, it's when his career sparked up. And I think it's when he really saw what he was doing was maybe he started as a stunt. I'm not sure. But he really, it opened up the possibilities. You know, he, he did sculptures in Germany. He had gallery shows all across Europe and Switzerland. And the UK, of course, he got arrested. And I think we settled on the right thing. Five of these classic bank uh, bogs bills, hand-drawn, and we're doing reproductions of them. We're launching with the British 50-pound note, um, which is it was in the collection. I think we made it first, uh, considering the passing of the Queen. And I, I think it's really exciting. Um, I, we, I was with your crew in New York for the Egon Sheila launch. 
And one of the questions was, is like, what's the value of this? And these works are not going to, especially in the case of Egon Chila, these works are never going to go into private collection. They're never going to leave the museum ever. Now the Boggs works, maybe they'll go up for auction. Maybe they won't. The, you know, maybe there'll be a Boggs museum in a few years. Who knows? But this is an opportunity to get access to these and the estate. We all came up with a great idea together to, with your NFT, you get the digital file, classic NFT, but we're producing a limited edition of that bill and a receipt in classic Boggs fashion. So every purchaser, every buyer gets a receipt with their crypto transaction, just like Boggs demanded a receipt in his transactions. So he's not around, obviously. We would like to think we're honoring his legacy. We got the blessing of people that knew him. Uh, you know, Craig, as you, know, as you mentioned, is an old friend. There's other people in the community. They've been excited about it. His biographer thought Boggs would like this kind of stuff. So we didn't take it lightly that we're extending a dead artist's work, you know, um, but we're not just, you know, we're not just carpetbaggers coming from the outside. This is the estate itself. This is the people that knew him, loved him, and are taking the, the responsibility of, of preserving his work very seriously. So hey, long way around. We're excited about what we've done. And I think we've chosen an incredible format and number of works to, to launch with. Yeah, I really think that what came forward when we were all putting this project together was the sense that we wanted to really um, do justice uh, to the artist. Um, for those who actually knew him, of course, the director of the estate is his cousin. Um, you know, this is somebody who knew him since childhood. Um, of course, Craig, a very good friend, and you, a very long-time admirer. So, and of course, the the La Collection team really kind of got on board and very uh, involved in this. And um, I think that people who come across Boggs's work do kind of generally. Uh, Life-changing is one word, but there certainly is. It's, it's, he has an impact. His his philosophy and uh, the way he lived his life has an impact. And um, what would you? What I what I love about the the drop that we put put together is all these elements. Um, because Boggs liked to kind of launch things out into the out into the wild and then see what happened and how these values. Um, increase, decrease, get exchanged. What would you kind of imagine as being an ideal scenario or just, you know, what could happen with all these different elements, NFT, printed, limited edition, the transaction receipts? What are you thinking? I mean, I'd like to think that anyone who buys one will keep it all together. You know, um, I don't, uh, maybe over time collections split up, but I would think that anybody who's buying this is a Boggs admirer and understands the importance of keeping all these pieces together. I certainly will. You know, I, I will keep the NFT where in my wallet where I, I usually store it, but I'm sure I'll put a copy of the digital file in a box with the, you know, with, with the actual physical items. You know, the other thing is Boggs is not uh, an unapproachable artist in terms of collecting. His later works where he was mass producing these sort of promotional fun bucks, they're about available for a couple hundred dollars. You know, on Heritage and, and eBay, I'll go to Heritage if you're going to buy. eBay is eBay is eBay. Um, but they're accessible for a casual or an entry-level collector. But his banknotes aren't. You know, these these are going these are valuable pieces. They're limited edition, they're hand-drawn. The estate is archiving them and, and cataloging them. Will they be available to collectors anytime, maybe years from now? By then, maybe his reputation is back to where it should be. And these prices may be completely inaccessible. The NFT and the estate-produced print and the receipt is a one, you know, it's a first ever of its kind. To have the digital component, we have to think Boggs would love it. And I have to think that collectors are going to you know, cherish it and hold on to it for years to come. I will. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do believe so. And you're right. You're right to point out, it, 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 at least in any case, the bills that we have chosen are were chosen for their rarity, for their originality. And um, and yeah, there's not so many of the these original works in circulation. So there is a, a big, as, as you say, people who generally buy bogs like to hold on to bogs. So that that's really, you know, really important. So, you know, to conclude, I think my question would be um, kind of what's next? Well, we've got this drop and we have four more coming. We have one sale live with you. So this is going to be a very exciting five weeks for us. It's also, to be honest, a great chance for us to take a little bit of a breather. So now it's just out to promote and try to get it in front of the collectors. Um, but we, the estate is planning more NFT editions. We will concentrate maybe on some of the more American art and see about the American market. And now it's the same conversations, which artwork, which works, what are their story? How do they resonate with connect collectors and sort of what format does it take? And, and what, how do we collect them together? So, um, you know, stay tuned. We're not, uh, we're not going to announce anything yet because it's not set. We want to do this collection with you and, and see it take off. Wonderful. And um, maybe you could say a few words about where the proceeds will go. I'm sure they're going towards really supporting the estate. Absolutely. The estate is a labor of love. You know, this was not the, this is not the estate of Picasso. You know, these are um, people, his estate is, you know, his loved ones, his family doing this as a passion project. Me too. There's, there's, I'm not on staff or anything like that. This is an advisory thing because it's a passion project and any of these funds will go to to this, you know, there, there are expenses for the estate to catalog and store and even just recovering all of his works where he lived in Florida to bring it back to a safe spot that costs money. So the proceeds of this sale will go to supporting those efforts. Wonderful. Well, that's great to know that this is really going to, you know, advance the, the archiving, as you say, you know, when an artist dies young, there's a lot to be done. And, you know, normally artists had the chance to, to get these things in order and many of them spend years doing this actually so it's a it's a big job and um i know that there's a passionate team behind it and i can't wait to see what happens next thank you very much so so yeah so let me thank you for your time it's been really fascinating talking with you and um and we will speak soon and uh, see what happens next love it thank you and for the opportunity appreciate it pleasure take care Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Collection 3.0. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a review. Also, we would love to know what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. Get in touch with us in the comment section or on our collection social media networks. See you at the next episode. Goodbye.